Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. The podcast where we talk justice with a guest over coffee. Now I'm especially excited to share this week's podcast with you because in this episode I got the chance to interview my old boss. So if I haven't already shared, I have recently spent a year working as a consultant for the amazing anti-trafficking NGO Justice and Care. And this week you'll get to hear from their CEO, Christian Guy. I've wanted to have Christian on the podcast for a long time, but I thought it might be wise to wait until he was no longer my line manager before doing so, just in case it went badly. Christian and I have known each other for several years. I spoke with him when I came back from my time with IJM in the Dominican Republic and shared my idea for Blue Bear with him and how I wanted Justice and Care to be one of our charity partners. About 18 months later, I was sat at a Justice and Care fundraising event, hearing them share about the work they'd done over the last 12 months and their vision for the future. And I was just so inspired that I thought, yeah, I want in. I want in. So I sat on it for a few months, trying to make sure I wasn't just being impulsive and emotionally driven. At the time, I was still working in close protection. This was going to be a major change for me. But the more I thought about it, the easier that decision was. And I can honestly say that I have even more respect and admiration for their work now than I did before I went to work for them, which often isn't the case when you lift the bonnet at a lot of organisations and see their inner workings, it can often leave you feeling a little disappointed. Not the case with JC. Much of the reason for that I put down to is its leadership. Christian is a remarkable chap. He has a great sense of humour, which you're soon going to hear, and leads with a humility and vulnerability that is open and willing to constantly improve which makes him, in my opinion, an exceptional leader. And I really enjoyed working for him. So without any more fluff from me, here's my interview with former specialist advisor to the Prime Minister and current CEO of Justice and Care, Christian Guy. Christian Guy, welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. I have to admit, it feels slightly strange talking to you in these specific set of circumstances. But how are you? You well? Very good to be with you, Bryn. Very well, thanks. It is a strange time, but uh, an absolute honour to be on your podcast. Um, such a fan of Blue Bear and what you're doing. So thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to it. It's very kind of you. So I don't know how, how much I've talked about this before, but might as well reveal it now that I, I've spent the last 12 months working with Christian at Justice and Care, and we would have a at least fortnightly Zoom call, wouldn't we? So this isn't an unfamiliar, this is an unfamiliar environment for us. It's just a bit, bit different today. Yeah, I do miss the office and uh, seeing people face to face is uh, certainly second rate at the moment, but we're making the best of it, aren't we? It's good. Yeah, yeah. Now, Christian, I, I knew you and I were going to get on in the early days, which was a relief. But mainly, we, we had something in common, which was frustrating names. I, I have always, I've always <laughs> suffered from my name being Bryn. Most people, like the vast majority of people, pronounce Brian. Uh, nothing against Brian, just that's not my name. Do they? They call it, they call it Brian. 
most yeah people. most most people like whenever i get a phone call and it's like an insurance company or something it's always always brian and sometimes people email me back brian as if they're oh. almost they almost presume that i've misspelt my own name <laughs> yeah that's, yeah exactly correcting you after a lifetime of, of failure yeah and of course you know that my name is welsh and i'm not yeah. welsh and of course it has a fantastic meaning it means yeah. prince of the mountains right Hill. Yeah. yeah, hell, no, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's a beautiful name. Um, I find uh, I find the name thing difficult. I people often send me memes of my. I end up on these BuzzFeed lists of basically idiots born to do what they're doing, and uh, my name comes up a bit. So I get frustrated, and people call me Guy the whole time, and then they might call me Christina by mistake. So it, I have every sympathy on the name front. Brothers in arms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're united on, on that front. Now, I know you today as the CEO of Justice and Care, former special advisor to David Cameron, CEO of the Centre for Social Justice, and the Commissioner for Social Mobility at the Home Offices. All of these incredibly impressive things. But what I really want to know, and I think what the listeners really want to know, is how do you take your coffee? It's the big one. It's the big question. I was very slow starting on coffee. I spent most of my first 25 years avoiding it. And on the day my daughter was born, she was born at 1 a.m. in the hospital, and I got back about 6.30 a.m., hadn't slept for a long time, and I reached for this horrible instant coffee that we had in the cupboard for reserved for guests who came to stay. And I, that, I've never looked back, And but thankfully I have... I think progressed in my love of coffees. I do quite like a flat white. I quite like a, a nice strong one in the morning to start me off as well. So I, I do like milk. I know that people think that is um, completely wrong because it, it, it ruins coffee. But I do, I do like a flat white cappuccino and I'm yours. That's okay. I've actually, I've always been a, a black coffee guy, a filter coffee guy. I'm, I'm more milky now. It's easier on my digestion, and I'm, yeah, I'm in my mid thirties. So you got to look after yourself. I think it's just, as, I think it's essentially part of growing older. You just want a bit of extra in 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 the mug, you know, and it's smoothness with a good with a good flat white. You can't beat it. So I think a black coffee, if you just need coffee, but to enjoy coffee, I like a a bit of that silk inside. And tell me, so tell me how things at work at the moment. Obviously, I've been away a few weeks since I went full time with Blue Bear, but I am missing you all. That is certainly the truth. How are things? Yeah, we miss you. The 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 statue of Bryn is being <laughs> at some stage. We do really miss you. I work's terrific. I mean, it's been a tough year with the pandemic, and and obviously, what's going on in the world and in our own country is awful. Uh, but we've slavery doesn't stop whether it's uh, in the context of COVID or not. So we're pressing on, we're finding more victims in the UK, we're rescuing more than ever. We are helping more of them home in Asia. We're making real progress on our cases with police and heading for prosecution. So upbeat, optimistic, it's tough. And any charity would say that right now, but we're really fired up. And I feel this, this cause we're both so passionate for is more, is more important than ever. Yeah, agreed. 
Now, the way we format these podcasts, or at least the way I like to interview people, I'm a very simple man. We, we both know that. And I, I try and follow <laughs> a pretty well, linear... Come on, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a safe one, but it could be you look, you look excellent when compared to me, I can assure you. So I try and follow a fairly typical linear chronological format. So that's where we are today. I want to I ask you to go back to a young Christian. And I know that you lived in the Southwest growing up, but that's that's about it. So what? take me back to, to childhood. And I want to get to a point that you start to think, hmm, I feel I feel interested in pursuing justice in some form. But get me get me to the previous stage. What did childhood look like for you? I was really blessed with a great family, great parents who worked hard. They cared about the right things. They set good examples so I was loved being in, in, in a good home and feel very lucky about that and I did quite didn't do very well at school I was really casual didn't work very hard got into a bit of trouble and took my off the ball I was a coaster that was the the, the teachers would often say he's coasting and um uh but I think I started to care about justice or or, or something that just wasn't right with the world when there was a couple of kids at school who would be picked on quite a lot they would be bullied and um I just felt something you know deep in the gut that it wasn't right and it wasn't fair and their life was being becoming miserable and I didn't quite know how to respond to it I was probably hopeless at the time but I just remember it started something in me I think which was I, I want to try and defend fight for people who maybe uh, are being treated very badly or having a really tough time. And, that, you know, but when you're in your teenage years, you don't really think grand thoughts. And I didn't know what to do with my life particularly. But I think that's where I, I first started to connect. And I hope kind of seeds of compassion were were sown. And uh, that, that made a big, big impression on me. So you went from being a casual coasting student it took you into sixth form college or college or what was the part? Yeah, I got into, yeah, I, I got glandular fever in year, year 10. I mean, and this is so boring for everyone, but, but I basically, did, it meant I did very badly in my GCSEs. I was quite unwell, didn't, and on top of not working very hard anyway, it wasn't great. I got into sixth form, again, coasted and scraped into university. But at university, I studied politics and international relations, and I, was fascinated by Tony Blair and it was the recourse to war in Iraq. I worked for a Labour MP at university for a while, just in her office. I went to Prime Minister's questions when Tony Blair in the House of Commons was facing Ian Duncan Smith, who I ended up going on to work for. And politics came alive to me. And so all of a sudden I enjoyed learning for the first time ever. I discovered this thing called a library and I was into books and my subject, for the first time, I felt what I was learning was relevant and interesting. So politics was something that I I really became fascinated by. And at the same time, kind of rediscovered my faith, which has been important for me in shaping what I try to do with my time. And those two things came together. And I think that the fighting for the marginalised, the exploited, almost there was a fusion at university where I got a bit back on track. And for the first time, took life a bit more seriously yeah that's interesting that you said that 
for you you made the association of politics being a place that you could respond to the marginalized a lot of people and we've had this conversation before and think quite plainly about politics and typically very negatively about politicians i wonder what you saw differently in politics from a young age that made it interesting made it attractive made you want to go to a library and pull out books and improve your knowledge around the subject matter i think i discovered through the the course and working for an mp member of parliament that a lot of things that go wrong in the world can have their roots in really bad government or corruption or abuse of power and a lot of what can be right with the world can be not always of course but can be sparked or led by a really strong government or a, or a politician that decides to fight for certain things and so i i saw the good that could be done but really the significance of the political process and you know, parliament is still in many ways the cockpit of the nation it is still where so much is decided and debated and a direction is set and politics can really make people's lives a lot worse or a lot better and it is only one way of improving things in our world and there are lots of politicians that are not in it for um, those sorts of issues but in the end you need enough people in there fighting for the right things for it to be 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 run well and for it to make a difference so i i suppose that is what interested me was that that leadership and ability to change a culture and set the direction in the country. Did you find that those early years you mentioned, and I want to come on to that maybe a little later about working for Ian Duncan Smith and then later David Cameron, but in those early days, did you have examples, you use that word leadership, of just really remarkable individuals and remarkable leaders? Did you experience that at a young age? Well, I remember not so much in political terms in, in my young days, but there were figures who in positions of leadership really inspired me. But I, I remember a lot of what we'd studied in, on the course was political history and took a fascination in people like William Wilberforce or um, Shaftesbury or others and Elizabeth Fry. And so people who decided at a key time to use politics to fight for good and often in an unpo- often against the tide of public opinion and, and when it was not fashionable to fight issues like modern slavery, they did it. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked at people like that and we studied people like Martin Luther King and others, and I was really inspired. But what I learned from them also was that it, it wasn't just about it wasn't just about them. And the you know, teams of people change the world and turn turn issues around. And so for every Wilberforce or Martin Luther King, there's an army of people behind them doing what, doing what they can. And I, I love the idea of people coming together and working for change that, that comes from all sorts of perspectives. So I, uh, I learned a lot from people, from people like that. Yeah, amazing. I love uh, both of those characters. And I <clears throat> didn't engage with my education at all. It was, it was, oh, it was a complete fast fast for me i didn't know where to go what to do with myself ended up at the university of chester doing a a dual so a combined honors degree in sports 
and exercise science with drama and theatre studies, which, as you'd imagine, was a huge really? door opener for me when I graduated. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm really envious of people that sort of discovered themselves at uni. I ended up joining the police because my mate I was living with had an epileptic, he was epileptic and he hadn't had a fit for a long time and he had a fit and hurt himself a little bit. And he was midway through his Met police application and he left it and it meant that he could no longer apply to be a police officer because he'd had a recent seizure and he left the paperwork around and I started thinking, hmm, this oh, really? might, yeah, this might, this might work. But yeah, yeah. I, I missed out on that sort of period at uni of absorbing all I could at, at that stage. stage yeah, I, it was, I, I was really slow academically and it's one of the reasons I, I, I feel for young people who are who struggle in school because of maybe the way it works or format of teaching or just because their brains aren't in the place to absorb it. But I, I think people can really switch on when they're 18 or even 25 or who knows, 65. And I, I think our education system isn't, you've got to set a rule for the majority. I get that. But I don't think we enough we do enough as people get older to, to really fire them up and, and let them engage with education. So uh, I was lucky at uni, but it, it was really more um, chance than design. I've never been someone who thought, well, uh, you know, when I was 15, well, by the time I'm 40, I'll be doing this. And I always envied people that had a real plan. They want to be a doctor or a pilot or a, a lawyer. I nearly became a pilot. I was going through the Navy process and thought that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't. I went to university. So I kind of admired people like it. And I've just staggered along in my career and got a bit lucky, really following passions did you have a plan when you graduated no I didn't and now looking back I can't believe how <laughs> unprepared I was to leave university but again I I found an opportunity in East London to go and work for a a local politician in Canning Town so I spent a, about six nine months in Canning Town in East London fighting local issues um, seeing local politics done having worked with the Labour MP I wanted to then go and look at local politics on the ground and that was was a real eye-opener for me but that was something I discovered right at the end of university I, I probably assumed I would just go home and, and think about it another time so again I I think we can do more for people as they're approaching these kind of big moments in life these cliff edges where they need some really good advice or they need someone to come alongside them and, and mentor them or, or probe them a bit I don't think we do that well enough in our system so again I got really lucky yeah i agree canning town is a very interesting place to work you must have learned a few things there i policed canning town it was in the borough of newham where i was a police officer for a year and yeah from canning town up to stratford across east ham west ham it was a challenging yeah. challenging borough with lots of yeah, social problems yeah because you've got you've got sort of diehard east enders who've been there for 50 years and then you've got obviously enormous amounts of immigration and you know, great, great people who've come to the UK to, to make their life and make their home. But I think sometimes those two groups clash or it doesn't easily sit, sit together. So it is a fascinating place. And I was, I was there probably five years, six years before the Olympic, no, before the Olympics. But, but actually, um, the, it was a great example of where governments kind of have flashy brochures and build lots of buildings. And the Olympics was pitched as this regeneration exercise and it can look like that but for real people I'm not sure how much of, of their life quality of life changed in East London and it was an interesting place to be yeah it remains a 
an incredibly challenging area it's the it was when i was in the most diverse borough in london i went from policing in norfolk which was 92 percent white british uh, to 90 plus percent uh, black and asian communities in, in new it's extremely yeah. different so after university you went to work as a community development officer um well that according to your linkedin profile tell me about that yeah it, really community organizing so um there I was uh in chicago I don't think you can compare me to the Barack, I've got to say, even I'm not going to go there. But it's the same industry, put it that way. The, the point of it was, you, you know, someone like me, I, I tried to, I was working for the, the council, the police, the schools. There was a partnership of agencies that came together to say, how do we improve this area? We'll put some investment in, we'll get, get someone in. And so we were setting up projects. We set up a, a children's centre. We uh, supported young people we dealt with loneliness we did some physical regeneration so it was really focused on turning lives around working with local people to to make their area better and one of my favorite things was we there were a lot there were a lot of young people who were out of school into antisocial behavior carrying weapons on drugs and we decided to set up this friday night football project which we called total football and it was targeted at the kids who were out of school and known to police and that that started and it taught me so much because on week one, you know, they were turning up stone, drunk, knives, and I had to referee this and you know, I nearly died because you give a free kick and all of a sudden it's World War Three. But within a couple of months, if you kept turning up and they kept turning up, it started to change and you could see this process of change that went on in them and they'd start to turn up sober or um free from weapons then they turn up a bit early and they might try and set up the goals or and then they wanted to do their coaching badges and so you could see by being consistent and putting them first and building a relationship things opened up and I think that project's still going now all these years later and it was just a good example but it was funny because the around about the same time Tony Blair was in number 10 just won his third election and he committed to this massive antisocial behavior initiative. And he created things like ASBOs in antisocial behavior orders. And he said, this is going to be the thing that deals with antisocial behavior and sorts these kind of young hooligans out. And they all turned up and uh, they wanted an ASBO. They thought it was a kind of mark of quality, a badge of honor. And like, if, if the prime minister thinks we're bad enough, then we're doing something right. So it was a great example of where politics can think it's doing one thing, but in the real world, it's the opposite. And I thought at that point, I want to get involved and help to try and shape policy and bring practitioners to the table in doing that. It's interesting you say that. It made me re remember a conversation I had with Justine Carell from Unseen, one of the directors of Unseen, who also has worked in government. And, and she says something very similar about the importance of that frontline connection and that the disparity between policy and practice and how it's being implemented so was that was that the next step for you you decided i think i could have some more influence around these subjects if i get get myself in westminster yeah i was in i still had the political interest and i thought i've learned i've learned something here on the ground there's lots i don't know but where can i get involved to try and shape some of these issues and debates and i found my way into an internship at the center for social justice and we were I was I was there and we I was given the job of becoming a researcher to Jonathan Aitken, who was a 
was once a very senior politician and then lied under oath in a trial at the Old Bailey uh, against the Guardian and ended up sent to prison. He was the first serving cabinet minister to have ever been sent to prison, which surprises a lot of people, but it was true at the time. Anyway, so I worked with Jonathan and learned all about the prison system. We started writing plans that were going to be fed into David Cameron before he became prime minister. So I was so fortunate to get involved at the CSJ at that stage. But I was just an intern for a year. My my wife earned the money and I um, travelled up to London and, and, and just learnt my way really in politics. But Jonathan had gone to Eton and Oxford and had been a war correspondent in Vietnam and was an, had been an MP in cabinet. And so he taught me more in 18 months than I'd learned in my whole school career. And it was brilliant. And he I st- he's still a, a mentor and a friend of, of mine now. But um, it was fascinating. And all of a sudden, this, this political world of, of, of opportunity opened up, but for social reform. And I, I loved it. And the CSJ was an organisation that had about 300 frontline charities in its alliance. And those charities were shaping policy development and into politicians. And that was my kind of dream that I'd had back on the, the AstroTurf being threatened with knives by kids <laughs> who wanted an ASBO. So you started as an intern at the, CA, the CSJ. I didn't know you later became, of course, the, the CEO, but there were some yeah, jobs in between that, wasn't there? Yeah, there were, yeah. The biggest lesson is if you hang around long enough, you probably get promoted. So I, I was a volunteer intern for a while, about a year, and then I got asked by Baroness Philippa Stroud, who was running it then, to stay on as a researcher. And then I took on other research projects. We looked at loneliness and older age, looked at drug addiction, um, police reform and then I took over as head of policy and then um, eventually the I was speech writing for Ian Duncan Smith and then and then became the chief executive so yeah it was I was very very fortunate and as I say I just hung around and others left and I think they just realized at the bottom of the barrel we might as well scrape away. <laughs> police reform what what can you remember your conclusions from that? Well it was at a time where there were masses of police targets and mm. it, and the the big the, the big answer was more community policing um less bureaucracy and <laughs> perverse targets and decentralize it so it was fascinating i still think there's a, an enormous research, reform project out there for a home secretary that wants to look at policing because I think it's a wonderful, incredible career. I wish I'd become a police officer a lot of the time, but actually I think if you talk to police officers, they'll still say we could we could do something else. Um, we've got 43 forces in England and Wales, and, and I think we could we could police in a smarter way. But I, yeah, we looked at lots of ideas for, for that and um, policing crime commissions and other, and other things like that. I think you probably have read it because I know we were both on the call where John Sutherland was revealing his his latest book behind the line. Have you read it yet? Yeah, well, I met, so that's when I met John. He was on a, a working group we did on youth and gang crime at the at the Centre for Social Justice. So I've read read that, read Blue. Mm. Um, and the work I'm doing now with, with Justin Kerr, I've just, my respect for policing has gone through the roof. These people are heroes every day. They're facing trauma and challenge and and difficulty that most of us will never experience in for a single day in our career and they're facing it all the time so there's obviously 
you know, lots of faults with policing, but these are amazing people and um, hats off to them. So I know John Sutherland's a hero and, um, and, and is a friend and I think he's doing a terrific piece of work. Yeah, I certainly think from all of the... I mean, police officers naturally aren't very forthcoming in having public opinions. You're almost told when you're in the police, you, know, you can have a private opinion. Don't whatever you do have a public opinion unless you want a very short career, you know. So it's almost sort of you're indoctrinated into that. Keep your thoughts to yourself quite wisely because when people meet a police officer, they don't meet for in the police officer. They meet a police officer. You know, you represent a far bigger organisation. They don't yeah. think of you as an individual. So you have to be super careful with your thoughts. But I think that in John's book, and, and, and I've read both of them too, he does an exceptional job at representing most police officers thoughts they've come on the job they want to do their best they didn't join for the salary heck no uh, they wanted to protect people they wanted to see justice done and it's a very difficult place but you're right it's flipping full of problems one of the reasons i couldn't stick it because there are all sorts of inefficiencies he also does a great job of describing them too take me to the next stage or well maybe we've gone past the stage but writing speeches for for politicians from a guy that scraped university that's quite that's quite a responsibility yeah it was it, it was ironic i when i started writing my first speech for ian duncan smith i did think what if my teachers who thought i was a nightmare could see me now um again you know one of the things i've learned along the way i think is say yes when big scary opportunities emerge you know you you're always out of your comfort zone when you're trying something new. And I was certainly out of my comfort zone. I was I was told at about two weeks to go that I was going to be sent to Washington, D.C. and to Ottawa and Canada with, with Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, and he needed three speeches written. He was giving two big speeches in Washington. And we were off to meet the Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, then. And he was giving a big speech in Canada linked to the Canadian Parliament and you need to write them. So I'd never written a speech before in my life, apart from my own wedding speech, which wasn't quite the same task. So we had to, I just buried myself away at the office for a week and wrote and wrote and wrote. And another thing I learned was that just write what you're asked to write. You know, I, Ian would send me notes, give me a briefing on what he wanted to say. And I didn't, my job wasn't to try and give the speech I would give. It was to give the speech he wanted to give. I kept it simple wrote it and it made some sense and so he kept me going with that and I used to write with him for articles and even when he went into government uh, um, I used to to support where I could when he was a secretary of state so it was really surreal I got you know it was scary though and again you know you gotta some of these moments are scary you know they it's you know, it sounds like the west wing but when you're sat there and it's you you're kind of you're, you're sweating and it's a big moment and you have to work late and it, it's tough. So not easy, but I really enjoyed that. Were you ever tempted to slip in any cheeky one-liners, any little jokes in there? No, he wasn't. Ian wasn't a particularly flowery speaker. So uh, no, I, they were given short shrift if I did try it. You know, and I, would, I wouldn't spend much time working on the perfect introduction because he would just say, look, I'll work out when I'm there. I want you to focus on the big speech. So I wasn't trying, you couldn't be too clever. And that was good advice. And again, when later I did some work for, for Cameron, you know, again, you just keep it simple. And um, yeah, it's it's tough writing a speech, actually, when you need to write a good one. God, yeah, I can imagine. I think it's most men are very 
very pleased to be invited to be best man and then they immediately descend down a spiral of doom. Yeah, we quite like destroying our best friend on standing, (laughs) but when it comes to saying nice things in an articulate manner, after a few drinks at a wedding reception, we're not not the best. True, true. So 2015 Modern Slavery Act came out. I know that you were involved in its formation with, with other people too, but talk to me about why you decided to get involved in that, why there was a need for having a piece of legislation to represent this issue. Yeah, tell me about the uh, Modern Slavery Act. Yes, well, back in 2011-12, we kept hearing about this thing, human trafficking, through the through the charities connected to the Centre for Social Justice. And we'd hear from prison officers or or frontline drugs charities or homelessness charities, and they'd say, or, or, or kids in the care system, we, we think there's something going on with, with people. They're being moved, they're being forced to do things, the stories don't quite stack up. So we had a look at it, and we had a we took we took people around the country, took evidence from lots of people, survivors, charities, police, lawyers, and said, do, do we have a slavery problem in Britain? And if we do, why and what can we do about it? And we, what we found was, was shocking to us. We, we, we could clearly see a problem and very little being done about it, particularly at the political level. And I remember talking to members of parliament who said, don't bother with this. This is not a vote winner. You know, we're going to get traction. There's a million things to do. Don't focus on modern slavery. We kind of dealt with slavery 200 years ago. And that was enough for us to just go harder because when someone says, don't do something obviously you're passionate about you just want to do it with more determination than ever so we came up with this this report called it happens here and in that was a a big idea for the first slavery related legislation since the days of wilberforce in this country because we said this hasn't gone away it's bigger and we're not dealing with anything like what we should be so we set out the proposals like an anti-slavery commissioner which we recommended We said businesses should have a look at their supply chains more than they are. We need law about that, learning from things in California we'd seen. We wanted new punishments for traffickers uh, and all sorts of other things. We put this to Theresa May in something called a cabinet committee, which is where the business of government is done, really. It's not done at cabinet around that big green table. Most of it's done in committees. And she had a look at it. Um, and it was initially a bit defensive because we had a big day of coverage on the BBC and in the Sunday Times and the government's line was, you know, we have, we're fine, we're doing what we can. But she looked at it and to her credit, she said, I'm going to do this. So then we ran a process with her and other M- members of parliament like Frank Field and wrote the Modern Slavery Bill and took it through parliament over the course of 12, 18 months. And just before the election in 2015, got this thing into law and signed off by by Her Majesty the Queen. So it was uh, an important moment. Um, and it shows you again, you know, that when the right people come together and party political differences are put to one side, politics can be a real force for good. It doesn't happen as often as we want, but nevertheless, it can get things done. And, and what that Modern Slavery Act did was put Britain on a better footing and it sent a ripple effect around the world and other countries have, have passed similar legislation and it's now a top priority at the UN. So it was important. Yeah, you must feel very proud to have been involved in that. I had a tiny, tiny part to play with it. I'm, I, I think it was just one of those 
moments where when the Queen stood up in her speech in Parliament and says, my government will introduce a modern slavery bill. You, you do realise that this is this is a, an important moment for the country, but more, to be honest, for the people out there that need action and need to be found and need to recover. So I was one of you know a few people that really you know was involved and it was a massive privilege. But um, what you do, you know, you realise that even after all that, and even with new legislation, it's only as good as what happens after it. But it's just a piece of paper. If no one, if no one implements it, then you've achieved absolutely nothing. So it also taught me not to be satisfied with, with just you know, some some moments, but actually that these sorts of fights, you've got to be persistent. It takes years. You've got to do the hard graft. Yeah, and it's it's incremental, isn't it? You know, it's like well. We- We've got a we've got a massive problem here. Where do we begin? Uh, we're seeing problem solving. Well, we probably need this. We probably know that. We probably need a piece of legislation. Okay, how do we do one of those? Where does that start? Now we've got the legislation in place. How do we enforce it? How do we make it more mandatory? How do we police it? And incrementally, step by step, we're getting, yeah, getting exactly. Look at look at the civil rights movement. You know, it would have been easy for them behind the Lincoln Memorial to think we've done it with the day he gave the speech about having a dream. But what we've seen in the United States this year with George Floyd and the movement that's coming from that shows that we're still in the foothills. And so you've got to fight on an ongoing basis. And I think what was important for, for as a lesson was to come in constructive it's it's easy to set out what's wrong and actually you've got to diagnose problems you know there's no point going to the doctor and he jumps straight to the prescription before you've really understood what's going on you you have to diagnose the problem before you can treat something but you can't stop at diagnosis you know imagine go to the doctor who says yeah you you've got this problem all the best you know and, and, and you want action so where i think we've got to do better as campaigners and charities and everyday people who care about things is to say, yes, there's a problem, but what do we do about it? What can we realistically achieve? And if you come in with a problem solving mindset and say, how do we get creative? How do we change things? How do we just avoid doing the same thing over and over again? And if you, if you do that in a way that um, engages in relationship and, and effectively, you can make a massive difference. Mm-hmm. And, but it takes optimism and it takes creativity. You can't just achieve things like change on modern slavery by telling people that we've got a problem. So in 2015, when that was... I've got an echo on the mic. Oh, it's gone now. Um, when that was enacted, you were you were working for David Cameron, right? Well, it happened around about the same time I went in to work for, for Cameron. So I... We just before the election 2015 got the bill through, and then after the election, he won his majority. I got a call again, it was one of those feel sick, start sweating, but say yes moments. And I remember what I was watching his speech on a Tuesday about extremism in Birmingham, it was on my screen in my office. And I then at the same time got a call from number 10 saying, Prime Minister, would like to see you tomorrow. Um, can you send your CV into him and it will go into his prime minister a box overnight and he'll read it. And I hadn't written a CV for about seven years because I've been 
stuck at the CSJ and not needing to find another job. So you kind of gulp and think, and it, you know, you'll see you at two thirty. Can you come in? So you, so you kind of you say yes, and uh, there was a process of you know talking to his team, and he and I went into his den, which is the office, and he sort of sat there with his shoes off, eating an apple, and and you're like, hi, and you know he's the prime minister, and then I felt very much like the kid who'd flunked school, and were, I thought I wish I'd been listening and double science because I'm probably a bit smarter than I am right now and it was a really bizarre moment and he interviewed me and was asking for ideas and said what you're going to do and it was a good grilling and um and then he said right when you when are you going to start so it was it was a strange moment but it was yeah it was a massive privilege is it uh I just wonder if it looks anything like the the inside of number 10 like what you see on um what's that Christmas film we all love Love actually, yeah, that was, that it does, and that was funny because everyone who came to visit me for meetings, they didn't want to see the prime minister or go and look at the cabinet room. They were like, "Where are the stairs from Love Actually?" And so they, and, and actually, even though they were different stairs, because in the film they, it's a set, um, you'd still see them sort of wiggle the bottom on the way down, uh, just trying to be a bit Hugh Grant like. So, and you know, if you're working late in the building, and you left with your headphones in, you were tempted to put on. The, the girls allowed uh, track as you left and walked down the stairs, but you were always terrified of bumping into the PM in his pajamas. Uh, he wasn't often doing the same thing, by the way, but there was that moment of fear that you'd end up dancing down the stairs together. I'm sure he did it. I can't confirm either way, but Love actually definitely put number 10 on the map. That's absolutely brilliant. There have been moments, I must admit, in my life where I've had to pinch myself, thought, wow, am I really here? Am I really in this position? But working you know, at the seat of power in the UK is, is not something I've experienced, but that must have, that must have been an incredible feeling when you were commuting, commuting in to go and work alongside the prime minister, obviously one reason or another, you know, something called Brexit came along and, and he lost his seat as a consequence of that. And I take it that you went with him. Yes, we, I did. So it was great to be in there and getting to attend the cabinet meetings and, and brief him and all of that. It was, it was amazing. And you know, they have Winston Churchill's chair and William Pitt's desk and it's incredible history. Um, and my office was just above the front door. So I'd walk in the front door every morning and pop up the stairs. Um, but yeah, I remember him. I remember just gradually in through that year thinking, well, we are going to have a referendum at some stage and being in the meetings and they were starting to discuss the timing of it. And I suddenly thought to myself, if that goes the wrong way, which nobody really expected it to, to be frank, that I probably, I'm done. And number 10 is, you know, there's a new, there's a new resident in number 10. And he always said he, he would probably stay if he lost. But I think in the end, he threw himself into the reform deal he got from the EU. He threw himself into that. He campaigned for it, often on his own, actually and obviously lost very narrowly and felt Britain needed to be led by someone who believed Brexit was the best thing for our country. And he didn't. And people often criticise Cameron for not believing anything or for not having his principles. But it wasn't true. He resigned because he did not believe Brexit was right for Britain. And um, he could have potentially stayed on a few more years and, and done it, but it wasn't in his heart. So I, we left very fast. The result came in. I remember waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. and they announced the result. I had a few hours sleep and um, thinking, 
better get into the office and went in. I was in by about 6.37, walked past his office and lots of people were in tears and quickly we heard he was going to resign and the, the media, the world's press were outside my window and the net curtains are there so they can't see you. But it was like a funeral in there and he was gone. And um, then Theresa May took over very fast because the Tory election collapsed and she became prime minister very quickly. And uh, so... I remember her being, I remember sitting at my desk in DC, brought her round, showed her the building, you know, here's the toilets and this is the policy unit. And that's where the chancellor lives because the chancellor lives above number 10 and the PM lives above number 11. And uh, she sort of, oh, very nice, very nice. And um, and then I thought, right, we're out. So he went to see the queen to, to resign and we went to the pub. And when we were on the street for his speech, he went off and we went out the back door because you couldn't go out the front and they kind of, you walk back in, they give you your box of stuff. They've taken your name off the, the door and your office is gutted. And uh, within about 45 minutes, the whole, you know, the prime minister's new team is in there and you're a distant memory. And um, it's amazing when I often say when power changes hands through blood and civil war and constant sort of death and struggle. But in Britain, it's very civilized, 45 minutes, time for a cup of tea and the new lot are in. It's amazing. What a curious experience that must have been. And I remember us, we were in Bangladesh, me, you and, and one of our colleagues, Jamie, and you said something that stuck with me. So I think we, me and Jamie might have been having a bit of a bash at previous country leaders. And you sort of said, hey, it's, it's a jolly hard job ruling the country. And you, yeah. you had an admiration for people in that position. And it, it, it spoke to me. And I imagine when you work up that close to somebody in, in that position, you don't see them as simply the prime minister and the office they they hold, but actually as an individual too, as a person. And yeah, I, I you, yeah, stay with me when you you responded to that. So you have and had admiration for 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 DC. Yeah, I do. I I really did. He was a he was so good at the job. This is an incredibly difficult job because every time you sneeze, you're you know, sneezing on behalf of the country, the political party, the Queen, you've got public listening, you know, you, you, you're, and the decisions you're facing. I remember, I remember one evening I was leaving a bit late and he was just strolling past me in the corridor back to his den and uh, sort of said hello and said hello and he went into the office and I left. And then later that night, it was announced that he had had to authorise a, a drone strike on two uh, British members of ISIS and um, they'd been killed and as I walked past him that's what he was mulling over you know I was thinking about what train I'd get and he was authorizing a strike or and these are the really serious things they're dealing with and um, I have massive admiration it doesn't matter whether it's the Labour Prime Minister, Tory Prime Minister or anyone else doing that job for more than 10 minutes is a, a massive ask so yeah I, I think it's an incredibly difficult place to be. Wow. I, I can't even imagine it. I mean, there really is no training or preparation for you to have that job, even if you're on the campaign trail and you start to imagine it. But especially for Theresa May, sort of coming in in such swift form, like, right, this is your job now that you're now in charge of the country. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, um, I guess then with you finding yourself in a position of temporary unemployment, you yeah. must have been doing some head scratching and soul searching. What, what, what was the thinking? Were you going to hang around and see if you can find yourself another political role or was it time for a change? 
I'd been in Westminster for about seven or eight years by that point and was hungry to do something more practical and hands-on. Although I would have stayed and worked with Theresa May if she'd wanted me to, I, I kind of thought my time in politics needed to, I needed a break. I mean, whether I go back or not, it's different, but I needed a break. And I think having seasons in your career is quite helpful because you stay fresh. And I, I had one meeting in number 10 where we brought a couple of young men in who were victims of, of slavery and they came to meet me. Um, and I felt guilty because we were sitting in this grand dining room and all the trappings of British power and, and they'd been kept as slaves on a traveller site and nearly died. And I, I just felt, so guilty that life was this unfair for, for them. And um, I just at that meeting thought, this is something I really still care about, having done the work at the CSJ. And I, we, there was a brilliant organization that brought them in called Palm Cove Society. And I remember the CEO, I just was so inspired by her. And I thought, when I leave, I want to do something practical like this and help people. So I was so fortunate to meet the founder of Justice and Care and his wife and uh, they said look we're looking for somebody to help bring this into Europe we've done a lot of work in Asia and I was so blessed to get to get the opportunity and but in when you when you do leave number 10 you really start to question what you want to fight for what's your life about and it's hard to follow it because you're right you've sort of been sat at the heart of it in a country but I'm so fortunate to have this this job and I love I love the fact that we're helping people every day yeah yeah, absolutely. So was that quite a small synapse between leaving number 10 and, and joining as the CEO of Justice and Care? It was a, probably two or three months. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, maybe a bit longer. So I felt I felt the pressure of unemployment. Like I, I you realise no one's going to pay your rent or your mortgage. You've got mouths to feed. You know, it's, it is a horrible feeling when you lose your job and you're not planning to do it. And so I spent a lot of time walking around London and meeting people and just working out what to do with my my life next. And it was a horrible feeling. But uh, this job at Justin Care just opened its, itself up and I was really fortunate to, to get it. But um, it gave me a different insight to what it's like to really worry about, you know, where where the next bill is going to be paid and how that works. And I, um, yeah, I, I won't forget it. And how have you found that switch from working in government to working for an NGO? Well, it was t- it's tough in a way because there is such a buzz about being at the heart of those decisions. But you, you appreciate the small progress more. So in government, I was involved in giving advice about decisions where department budgets were £200 billion. I mean, the Department of Work and Pensions the budget when I was there was bigger than the GDP of Portugal. You know, you're involved in shaping that, but you don't feel that connected to real life sometimes and, and real change and the implication of the policy you're creating. Whereas just in care, especially when I joined the number, you know, we, in, we were doing very little in the UK and we started small and that was right. But learning to be content with smaller progress and, recognizing that every life one at a time matters was was a great learning for me but it 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 did take a while to adjust and have you noticed 
a nexus between the charitable sector and politics from your last four years at Justice and Care? Well, I think the charities that Charities that do well are the charities that, yes, deliver their programmes, but do engage politically, that do try and have influence and, and, and do advocacy and, and win politicians over to their, to their cause. And the charities that pursue systemic change and look for that scale, I think, are the most effective ones that bring the solutions and are creative, like we touched on earlier. So there are plenty that don't and they can't or they don't have the expertise either. But for those that do, I think it's it's very powerful. There's not enough of a connection between policymakers and the front line. Members of parliament do actually spend quite a lot of time in the real world because they are outdoor knocking, they've got surgeries. They're quite well connected with their constituents, but civil servants and special advisors don't. And I think that's where it goes wrong. So I'm really passionate about connecting the two. So there are, yeah, there are there are overlaps, no question. And Justice and Care has that function as well, doesn't it? With that relationship with the Centre for Social Justice. And I want to get into it shortly, but the, the report it was involved in co-authoring and keeping the issue of modern slavery at, at the top of the political agenda, not allowing it to be overlooked. That's something that Justice and Care is, has taken on, hasn't it? Yes, it's important. that What we would call systemic change is is critical because if you're serious about tackling a problem you've got to go for you've do you've got to go for scale in the end so it i i recognize the value of every person we rescue and if that's all we achieve it's been a really important thing to do because thousands of people are, are free that weren't weren't before and other charities can say the same but it's a global problem these are international criminal networks that charities don't have the authority to go after so to really tackle slavery internationally you need ngos working with governments you need good policy the right law and you need a proper response within policing and, and prosecution services so it's important for us to share everything we learn with them in the hope that it would create a change far bigger than our own organization can so to tell us a, a little bit about justice and care and you can do it sort of high level but for those people that have never heard of this organization before what does it look like you know how does it operate where is it based yeah most people won't won't have heard of it um it is a an international anti-human trafficking modern slavery charity we exist to do three things one is to help as many people out of slavery and exploitation as we can find working with police Second thing is to bring their abusers and traffickers to justice because it is a, a business, an enterprise, an industry. It just happens that people are the commodities. But to bring human trafficking down, you have to bring down the businesses that profit from it and organize it. And the third thing we do is work with governments, like I said, because it doesn't matter how big we ever become, we'll never have the authority to go and arrest people and we'll never have the ability to invest our budgets at a scale governments can. Um, and we haven't got the ability to work with other countries. And so you could give Justice and Care the entire budget of the British government and it wouldn't be enough. So you've got to work with governments and that's the third thing we do. We've got operations in the UK where we work with five police forces and that will that will grow this year, which we can we can touch more on. We've got 
a small growing team in Romania and Eastern Europe because we've got to work from source countries like Romania and destination countries where people end up traffic to like the UK. We've got an excellent team in Bangladesh and we've got partners in India and Thailand as well. So it, it is a global effort because it's a global industry and you've got to work across borders. Yeah, amazing. I think that's one of the reasons I was so, I felt very privileged to spend some time working with, with you guys was because of the way justice and care is structured. It, it, it's, it's still quite nimble in the way it's been created it's quite agile we're not heavy on personnel unnecessarily it's it seems it feels like a very tactically designed organization and i know up till sort of before you came on board and and jamie and, and some of the other team it was quite a low profile if not a, a, an intentionally low profile organization because the nature of the investigation work that was being carried out in india and now it's it's going through a, a period of growth like you've just said we're looking to take on more members uh, of staff that are working collaboration with police forces in in the UK. So yeah, why don't you tell us a bit about the Victim Navigator program in the UK, which I think is absolutely amazing. I see it's just recently won an award. Yeah, we were so lucky we got Breakthrough of the Year award from the Third Sector uh, Alliance. So the Victim Navigator program is a simple idea, which is that by deploying victim specialists into police teams, working shoulder to shoulder but independently of police teams, we will find more victims and we will build trust and care for them that firstly rebuilds their lives as they deserve and are not often getting right now. But secondly, unlocks the things they're willing to share that help us then pursue organized crime because victims of trafficking are treasure troves of information and intelligence that we need and yet we treat them very badly. We don't know how to engage them and, and police don't have the time either. So by standing in the gap, almost as a bridge between survivors and police teams, we're unlocking really important information that enables us to, to help the police to prosecute criminal networks. And so the programme is, is, is simple, but it is an innovative idea. We've got five navigators. We're growing up to, uh, we're going to be at 10 within an, an, another few months and then 15. So, it is a program that is, is making a difference and we're finding people are talking. 83% of the survivors we're working with are now talking and engaging with police and the average is about 30% nationally. So there's something here which can really help. Yeah, I think it's a, a fantastic concept and I was lucky enough to go out with some of the victim navigators and I went on one operation with one of our colleagues and it was, I was just so proud of her because she was an ex she is an experienced ex-police officer she did 30 years as a detective most of it and now has gone back working for justice and care to the same police force to work as a victim navigator and she was introduced in front of this room full of cops we were on a operation we were targeting a, an address that we believed to be victims of slave slavery being being held there and our colleague was was introduced to everyone say hey this is I'll keep her name out of it and this is what she does and if there's any if we meet any victims then let's refer them to our colleague and let's make sure we sort of promote her services and it was really for me as an ex-police officer it was interesting because we never really thought like that before and it's a culture change that needs to exist in the police and most people come out of an address in handcuffs regardless certainly if you're going to cannabis grow houses you know they came out with handcuffs because they're associated with drug production never did we think 
they probably don't choose to live under the stairs in a sleeping bag, eating the occasional pot noodle and watering plants 24 hours a day. Maybe they're a victim. Maybe we need to deal yes. with them differently. And and that that culture still exists. I'm, I'm sure it can be deep seated and it's going to take a, a a lot of work to, to reverse it so that we start dealing with people slightly differently. I remember going to do brothel closures. And, you know, we got zero engagement. Absolutely. But then again, there were four knuckle dragging coppers, six foot tall, covered in body, you know, uh, body armor, looking like some sort of paramilitary group. And you think, oh, I wonder why we, they didn't want to engage with us. Uh, you know, it's an appalling response, really. Uh, and I've only come to that conclusion from from working with the Victor Navigator program. So I am. Yeah, I'm really excited to see that develop across across the country. I think it's got huge potential to make quite a lot of difference thank you i i'm so so glad you, you've seen it and i do believe in it i was on a i was on an early morning raid of a cannabis factory a few months ago and it still happened they still brought these boys out in handcuffs and we had to say these are you've got to be treated as potential victims you don't lock them up so it, even where we've got navigators it's a it's a journey but if we can get there i think it will transform the fight against trafficking in this country because we will unlock so much information that then the police can run ahead with and at the moment victims walk away they disengage they won't talk they don't trust us at, at, at the policing level and and that's what we're helping to do so hoping it's going to make a difference i think it will and it's 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 great to see the organization sort of pioneer new work be be innovative in, in tackling these issues and another a moment in the spotlight for justice and care this year bear in mind this is an organization that intentionally avoided the spotlight but has quite rightly enjoyed it earlier on in the year when it co-authored this this report that i referred to earlier on in the podcast so you mentioned the piece of work that you did pre-modern slavery act 2015 being something called it happens here yeah and then this report that we were involved in co-authoring with the center for social justice is called it still happens here I don't know what I'm going to call the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on with it. Um, yeah. Yes, we did call it It Still Happens Here because we wanted to send another message. And this isn't, there's a risk that when you achieve something like new legislation, everyone thinks you've done the job. And in government, they think slavery, legislation, tick the box, all the best. And then we've got to make sure that we, we help people to see we're just getting started. It's base camp. You know, we've got to base camp there's a long way to go. So the report set out what slavery looks like in the UK, scale, nature, uh, locations, victims, and what we need to do about it. There were good ideas in there that would take the country forward, things that we need to change in law, the way we work on uh, the police front, the way we prosecute, the way we care for victims. So there's a whole series of things in there that I think the country could could look a lot better with if we implemented um, at the government level. And the number that was estimated, uh, in because once upon a time we got this UN number of 10 to 13,000 people in the UK living in slavery, which was always just farcical really, wasn't it? But this study that we were involved in used police data and extrapolated it in order to find a number of 100,000 100, plus. Yeah. That's right. And that is still conservative. So, you know, I think it's, it's easy and a lot of people get obsessed with what the number is and I don't think we need to spend much more time saying it's 80 or it's 100 or it's 110. 
the point is it is not 10 to 13,000, which the Home Office still insists is the scale of the problem. And their figures of victims actually found are again lower than that as well. So based on police data and new technology they've got to mine their crime reports and the way things are tagged, it is at least 100,000, probably more, but that is bigger than the prison population. And it is a lot, it, it, and when you look at the number that people we're finding every year, we're finding about one in 10 victims at best. So uh, we've got to do better. And that's the point from that number. It's it, it, it's going to be more. It's still a, an estimate, but it's based on police data. So it's absurd for the Home Office to sit there and say it's 10,000 because it it isn't. And that matters in government because a the government response to a 10,000 person problem is one thing. A response to something that's at least 100,000 is different. And, and that matters. I wonder whether... There will be a challenge there. I mean, I remember from policing days that there would be priorities change. In the moment, we need to get drugs off. We got a problem with drugs. Stop and search people, get into their pockets, find the drugs. We got a drug problem. We deal with it. And then it becomes very unpopular to, you know, we move on to something else. It's really unhelpful to be proactive in your approach and discover, hey, yeah, but what about this this cannabis farm over here? Or what about this this new drugs gang that's that's running heroin in this area of the town? Oh no, our figures have just shot up. I thought we'd got rid of that problem, and I just wonder, post COVID generation, you know, and and the political challenges, the challenges on our economy, that's going to be a challenge, isn't it? Saying because this is we got to go and find these people. It is we've got to convince the government that we've got a problem and then we've got to go and find the people and i'm sure there'll be a temptation to go yeah there's no problem here that we don't need to invest our money here we know we've got a problem over here let's let's focus on that don't introduce a new one to us yeah and it was a it was a big priority under theresa may and there's a risk it's also fading away just because people are a bit tired of it at the policing level but the way i think the two things that give me hope first is there are lots of young people out there and people of all ages that say we do not want to live in a country where people are bought and sold and owned and abused, full stop. So it's a priority. I mean, we get angry about things like horse meat in our burgers. You know, Let's get angry about the fact that British children um, and others are being kept as slaves in 2020. It's, it's insane. Um, and secondly, I think it, I've, I've got hope because if the public can help to find them, and so many of the where so much of the progress made is when members of the public spot something, or a professional in another organisation says, "I'm not sure about that." Well, there's this person who's turned up at A and E or in my prison system, or this kid in the care system. When those things are triggered, you, you can't choose to ignore them. So, the more we find ourselves the less able it will be for others to say, let's just sort of distract them and, and not deal with it. So I, I definitely think there's that risk. And if we just leave it to government or, you know, a, a police officer already swamped by a hundred problems that it may not get the attention it needs. But if we force it through our own ability to find it, they can't back out. So we're asking people to look out for this. What What are some of the things they should be looking to spot what were some of the things that would help them know actually yeah yeah i should be suspicious that is unusual well you don't want to create paranoia so it, i don't want any sort of sense that it's everywhere you move there are there are slaves but clearly 
that sort of neighborhood watch spirit that we had when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, you know, my parents were part of neighborhood watch. The sense we can be eyes and ears in our community to keep it safe and keep people safe is important. So we're looking at simply places and people. So where we live down the road, there is a place which we're about to report, which we think could be a brothel. It's a, it's a residential house, but there are warning signs. There's a young woman that walks into it every day when we're doing the school run. She's carrying certain bags. She's dropped off by the same car. The curtains are always closed. The gate is shut, but there are men coming and going. The lights are on in late at night. So there's enough there to say, right, let me report that. Or the, the local car wash, people see people being bussed in and don't look very well. They are worried if you try to talk to them and they look you know, uncomfortable. There are, there are all sorts of things, the nail bars, restaurants, whatever it might be, where just in your gut, there's something that says, not sure that's quite right. And at that point, reporting it to the modern slavery helpline, or if you're worried about someone's safety or that a crime's being committed, then just dial 999. Those are things we've got to start doing. Agreed. I I wonder, as we get towards the end now, if, if you could look back over the last few years at Justice and Care and identify, it doesn't have to be one lesson, but if there are any key key lessons you've learned from, from this latest chapter of your life at Justice and Care. I've learned a few things. One is you've got to fight for the things that you care about. And sometimes just by occupying a space, by refusing to back down, by shining a light on something, you can make a difference. So you've got to fight hard. You've got to partner with others. So we are working with amazing police teams. We are working with nearly 50 organizations around the world, other charities that we're joining forces with to rescue people. So partnership, there's no chance we tackle a problem of this complexity or scale on our own. Um, and I also think that it, it, this is possible. We can, we can succeed. I don't think it's inevitable that we grow up in a country or hand over a country to our future generations where this is the way it works. We can end it. We can bring trafficking down. And, and I think we need more of that belief and optimism. So I think they are, they are key lessons for me. And every time I sit with one of our young survivors, and you and I have been out to the you know, Bangladesh, and, and we, we've, we've sat with children who were slaves and are now having a chance to live again. And they've got businesses or they've got children and they've got hope again, or they're in a good marriage. When you meet those people, you can see it's doable. So I, I find the cynicism or the skepticism out there that we can ever tackle this problem. I just find it infuriating because you and I have sat with people who prove you can do it. What we need is a scale to that effort. We're not trying to invent a way of succeeding. We know what it takes. We've got to scale it. And that's the task. So I feel immensely optimistic that it can be done in our lifetimes. And even if it isn't, let's do all we can to get there. Um, and go skidding into the grave. I like it. And what are the what are the main challenges to that? What are the main hurdles and obstructions to seeing that achieved? I think we've got to raise the profile of it because we do rely on people, everyday people, to to help find these slave slavery. Um, 
prioritization. There's a lot of stuff out there for politicians and police officers to deal with. You know, we've got to make the case as to why this matters. And I just think fundamentally, where people are being held as slaves, where they're not free to live their life, it doesn't get worse than that. I mean, it's just it's just a deliberate oppression and brutal destruction of another human life. You've got to make that a priority. And uh, I think things like COVID make it hard, but I'm convinced that if we can rise up a generation who say, not anymore, and you've got politicians and businesses and activists and journalists and people like you and me doing our bit, we can get there. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday on the phone, sort of, I'm sure you get these every now and then, and uh, sort of connection of a connection of a connection who wanted to talk young guy lovely bloke and uh he's passionate about this subject you know he wants to get involved he feels called to respond and i would imagine there'll be people listening to this that are thinking yeah i want in i want in do i have to be an ex-politician or an ex-cop or whatever how do i how do i get some skin in the game what would you say to them well have a look at our website have a look at other great charities that are out there there are there are some brilliant organizations and understand more about the issue and what's happening there are things you can do in your personal life, like looking, spotting the signs of slavery, being aware you can back a charity financially, even if it's you know two pounds a month, whatever. You get behind an organization that you feel is making a real difference. And I don't care whether that's us all or not, but get, get involved. There are also volunteering opportunities. It's hard with this issue because it there are limited opportunities because of the complexity and the sensitivity. But there are, you know, at Justin Care, we we are now setting up with your help, Bryn. A volunteer program which you know drivers and others who can come and support that counselors and translators and also maybe maybe you are thinking what do i do with my career and i would encourage you to do what you can to make your career count there's all sorts of ways of getting involved whether it's earning a shed load of money and giving it away whether it's working in a in a public sector agency or in a charity or becoming a lawyer but but directing your talents and abilities to something like this or whatever issue it is that gets you out of bed in the morning. We need more people like that. So uh, go for it. Yeah. Selling coffee and, and giving the proceeds away. Amazing. And what, what you've done though, in you know Dominican Republic and on the beat in Norfolk and New America, it's, it's terrific. It, it makes the world a better place. And now the coffee is doing that too. And um, it's, it's brilliant. So I, you know, you, I all power to you and think it's really special. Well, that's very kind of you. And I certainly wasn't asking for a compliment there. And I, I probably chopped that out. But it's Don't not... edit it out. Don't edit it out. And every time I say a sentence, I'm going to just drop in the fact that you're not allowed to edit out the compliment. <laughs> everything I say now is just going to be impossible to edit. Kristen, let, let's end there. I, I could talk to you all day long, but I'm sure it will get sort of less and less interested minute by minute due to due to me not not to you thanks so much for giving me some time this afternoon i know how busy you are it's been great to have you come and share on the podcast and i just wish you and the team all the best going forward i know what you're doing is amazing and i just want to i want to be in the stands cheering you guys on and, and just seeing these achievements take place one after the other so thank you mate Bryn, thanks for having me on thank you for all you did for Justin Care this year. It's been amazing. It's transformational. And everyone, buy Blue Bear Coffee. I'm going to do some this afternoon. <laughs> you didn't have to say that. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cool guy, isn't he? I thought you'd like him. 
Was there anything about our conversation that resonated with you? Anything from Christian's life? I found it really interesting how he first became switched on to the potential for social reform. From his days volunteering in East London, refereeing five-a-side football and connecting with local lads and seeing their potential. His appetite for politics wasn't born from academia or research or ego, but from a place of compassion and a desire to help. Getting to know Christian has caused me to rethink some of my opinions on politics and politicians, if I'm being honest. And I don't know about you, but hearing him describe the potential for large-scale change brought about through political reform, new legislation, lobbying government and producing data-driven research makes for a convincing argument why we need to engage with our politicians. It's not enough to simply berate them and highlight their inadequacies. We have to find a way of turning their heads, of capturing their gaze, of working with them. Rather selfishly, I hope that Christian remains at Justice and Care for many years to come. I think he's doing a top job and I can't wait to see all that is to come through that particular organisation in this country and overseas. But I can't help but wonder what it might look like if he were to one day return to politics. Wouldn't it be exciting to have someone like Christian in number 10 again, holding up the issue of modern slavery and demanding that we, as a country, do better? He would certainly get my vote. Thanks for listening. Do send us a message or a tweet via our social media channels at Blue Bear Coffee Co., Let us know what you thought about the podcast and if you have any subjects you would like us to cover or suggestions for guests to have on the show. We would love to hear from you. We're so grateful for your support for this podcast and all that we're doing at Blue Bear that we want to offer you a discount on all orders for the month of November 2020 at bluebearcoffee.com. Just as a small thank you from us. Just enter the discount code Justice and Coffee, uppercase, and that's and A N D, not the ambersand. At the checkout, and you will receive a ten percent discount on us. Wishing you well wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are during this difficult time. Peace.